This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Moshe Schwartz. Moshe is the president of Etherton and Associates, and today we'll be taking a wide-ranging look at you know, developments in acquisition policy on the Hill, uh, key policy issues you know, within the administration and government procurement, uh, some of the key folks in the administration, and you know, also just looking at near-peer adversaries and you know where and, and, and what's going on in that regard, and particularly with China. So, Moshe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, that's an ambitious list of topics we're going to cover. Uh, but first, I'd like to you know, give you an opportunity to tell the listening audience a little bit about your background and how you, how you came to Etherton & Associates. Sure. So I spent a number of years working at uh, the Government Accountability Office and the Congressional Research Service, really covering areas of defense acquisition, you know, contingency operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it always touched on uh, defense acquisition. I spent a little bit of time at the Commission of Wartime Contracting, spent a little bit of time uh, teaching at National Defense University, but a few years ago, I was the executive director of the 809 panel, which was the congressionally uh, created panel to look at streamlined defense acquisitions. And I got to know John over the years and, and finally left government, as many of us are wont to do after many, many years of really working hard to promote public policy and, and doing what we think is the right thing. And I had the opportunity to work for John with a year. And eventually he got to the point where he's like, you know, Moshe, I think it's time for you to take over. And I could not have a, uh, a better mentor or someone better to learn from than John Efferton. And I can never say no to him as few of us can. So here I am, I guess. Right. Well, yeah, uh, John is just such a great guy and he is a great mentor. And, you know, I, I feel the same. He, he's, he's helped me over the years so much and just understanding better the market and policy and all those sort of, sort of things. So, um, so yeah, you have a great mentor there. So, so let's uh, turn to um, the you know some of the topics that you know, I mentioned uh, to open the show. And I, I think first let's just talk about FY twenty one, you know, appropriations and where things are, and, and you know where are what and the NDA and just a host of topics in the, in that regard. So I'll, I'll just open it up to you. Go ahead, Moshe. Sure. Talk- so if we look at the twenty one, right, the enacted. Uh- funding mm-hmm. for, for DOD it was about 704 point something billion dollars. And the top line proposal from the Biden administration now is for about $715 billion, which while 1.6% higher is if you're adjusting for inflation, about a 0.4% decrease, right? So it, it's higher in raw dollars, it's lower if you adjust for inflation. And that compares to about 722 billion that the Trump administration was proposing before the before the election, right? So I guess you could look at it and say, well, it is a little bit of a cut compared to what the Trump administration was proposing for the upcoming year. 
But I think one thing that makes it a little bit more interesting is the announcement from the administration of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? So as we know, they're rolling OCO, the Overseas Contingency Operations Budget, into the base. Um, mm -hmm. is that even, does that even matter anymore when you don't have sequestration? Probably not, because spending is spending, so you don't need an OCO budget per se. But if you look at the withdrawal, the estimates I have heard is, and seen is that it would probably save DOD about $7 billion. So if you jump to 22, you know, fiscal year 22, that is really the difference between the Biden budget proposal and what the Trump budget proposal would have been if it had stayed the same, which basically means if you roll in the savings from a withdrawal from Afghanistan of about 7 billion, you're at that 722 mark. So that's the, the first thing that's worth mentioning. Another thing which I think is, is interesting is if you look at some of the stimulus plans, those that have been passed and those that are being talked about, including infrastructure, there's a lot there that focuses on semiconductors, printed circuit boards, microelectronics, or in other words, a lot of areas that while great for go government-wide, um, also will touch on the Department of Defense. So in some ways, they will benefit, DOD will benefit in a way from this other spending that they would not have had to and may have wanted to spend some of their own money to do as well. Um, the non-DOD agencies definitely um, fared better across the board from the top line that the administration proposed. And they also will, of course, benefit from some of the additional spending in, in potentially infrastructure bill, uh, China bill, you know, the no, Frontier, no Frontiers Act that Schumer has been talking about, if that comes to fruition in others. Right. That's from the appropriation side. So, hey, Moshe, from, can you talk a little bit in that, from that perspective? It's, um, you know, it, does it reflect... Yeah, change in priorities in in the sense you know from the from the defense budget to your to your point it's flat or even a slight decrease I guess um, that doesn't sound to me like you know there's a radical change in the the you know in the priorities at the department can you talk a little bit about that yes so I would say looking at the top line will not necessarily give you some of the visibility that we will get when the budget actually comes over because priorities could be shifting potentially even significantly based on how the money of that top line is reallocated, if it is reallocated, right? Sure. So there has been some talk both in the administration and, and with some members of Congress talking about the need to get away from legacy systems and move to more IT and unmanned. Now, how to define a legacy system is very difficult. What do you mean by that? But putting that aside, in the budget, there could be a lot of turn. Are we going to shift resources to cybersecurity? Are we going to shift resources to uh, cyber warfare, electronic warfare? Are we shifting resources to the Pacific, like the Pacific Initiative? We will see a lot there. And just the withdrawal from Afghanistan, a minor $7 billion that will be spent by DOD, you see that's change in priorities and allocation. So right. we will see more about that, but there could be a lot of shift in priorities, even within a flat line. Right. And that's more to come on that is what you're Hopefully saying. Hopefully sooner rather than later. <laughs> this is already a fairly late budget historically, yeah. um, but at some point, yes. Right. So do, do you want to talk next about, or do you have anything further on the budget or appropriations that you want to? 
Well, um, maybe this yeah. is a good time to actually jump to the NDAA. Yeah, that's okay. Let's do that. Go ahead. Um, you know, if you look at last year's NDAA, there was a lot in there, a lot in there that normally might not be in an NDAA, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because of the timing. But if you're going to look at themes of the NDAA, I think some of the main themes that we would have seen from last year when we look at it is, of course, China. China is driving a lot of legislation writ large, and we can talk more about that. Supply chains, which, again, potentially driven to some degree about China. Cybersecurity, which, again, is um, being driven to some degree about China. But those were a lot of the big themes, right? Um, Cybersecurity, secure supply chains, Pacific Initiative, and and China. Um, I think it, it would be more surprising if those themes did not continue than if those themes didn't continue, because a lot of those issues are still issues Last year's NDA was passed before solar winds, so that is almost more of an issue now than it was before. Right? China is as much of an issue, uh, which we'll talk about later, so that will still be there. And we know there's a lot of ramping up of secure supply chains, um, particularly as the, what has happened with COVID has continued, we, and we have seen some of the vulnerabilities in our supply chain. So I would expect a lot of those themes to continue. Um, when will we see an NDAA? I think that is a good question. And to some degree, that is tied very much to when we will see a budget, right? Um, but I think a lot of the themes there are, are going to sound very, very familiar, familiar. I also would expect to see, and obviously these are related, right? Um, a lot, some more about Buy American. We'll probably see some more domestic sourcing. And one of the questions there is, are people conflating intentionally or unintentionally um, domestic sourcing and secure supply chains, right? Where do you draw the line between, well, we need to bring certain strategic capabilities back to the United States, like PCBs, there is a worldwide shortage, right? Um, PCB semiconductors, uh, which is hurting. It's not a DOD issue, it's DOD issue as well. It's an auto industry issue. It's a, a PC issue. Try buying a computer now. The costs are are a lot larger. And where is it more of a buy America domestic sourcing that is different from a secure supply chain issue? And that's something that uh, sometimes gets conflated and the line is sometimes blurred, but I expect to see um, some of that as well. And it is definitely a priority of this administration, as they have said a number of times and with the executive order. So I think those are the main themes that we will see um, in an NDAA. And it will be very interesting to see with this razor thin margin in the House, as well as a razor thin margin in the Senate, right? It's not possible to be closer in the Senate, right? Right, right, right. (laughs) Um, Right. You'd have to flip a coin and have it stand on its edge to be any different. Um, See how that plays out in these negotiations and the tug of war between certain elements of the Republican Party and certain elements of the Democratic Party that both have the power and numbers because of the razor thin edge to uh, have a fair amount of influence in their own caucuses. Right. So, you know, Moshe, we're, we're already, you know, up on the break and you covered a lot of ground there. That, um, and I think when we come back from the break, I, I, I guess I would like to, you know, focus a little bit more on, uh, you know, the, the, the industrial base, you know, there's China, cybersecurity and industrial bases, those big themes in the FY21 NDAA. And let's just start with, the industrial base and talk a little bit uh, more on that. I want to unpack, you know, that idea of domestic sourcing versus sort of a secure supply chain and what you, 
what that really means from a policymaker perspective and what it could mean for, you know, for industry as well. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He is a president of Etherton and Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. Moshe is the president of Etherton and Associates, and we're talking uh, about, we've been talking about the appropriations, a little bit about last year's NDA, the big themes, and uh, one of those sort of big themes that uh, you touched on, Moshe, is uh, the industrial base. And I guess it's, we can start there. I know it's part of that's a reaction to China and other things, but um, let's just talk about the industrial base. And one of the things that you mentioned in the last segment is you know domestic sourcing and, and secure supply chains. And they could be one and the same, or they could be a little different, I guess, or a variation on that. Can you Talk a little bit more about what people are thinking about in that regard. Sure. So one way I sometimes think about this is I think there are three tiers. And we actually saw this in the NDIA. Congress was struggling with this. They passed a legislation in this area in different sections of the NDIA that seemed to be binned almost in three different tiers. The first one, which is very relevant to China, um, from a military perspective, but also very relevant from the COVID perspective, is um, who we don't want to be reliant on. So, for example, to the extent that China overwhelmingly provides rare earth minerals that our economy and our defense rely on, we probably don't want to be overly reliant on China. So that's bid number one, bid number one. Who don't we want to have to buy things from? And we saw legislation like that, and we very, mel- very well may see legislation like that in the future that says you can't buy certain things from China. You know, like 889 comes to mind, right? Right, Some right. Of the, uh, mm-hmm. Telecommunications equipment. Um, and to the same degree, not only you can't buy from, but we need to develop internal capability to do right? Because of that. So that's level number one. Then the second level of debate, I think, is the debate of buy allies versus buy America, which is to the extent that we're not buying from China and North Korea, Iran, and Russia, which is usually the four countries that come to mind together. um, How much of it do we just want to band together with the other democracies? And this is something that this administration has talked about before like almost united democracies, like the quad model, right? The quad is those four countries, India, Australia, Japan, and the United States that are trying to harmonize their approach to China, right? Well, does that include trade and industrial base or are they separating that, right? So how much do we want to do by allies, you know, by like-minded democracies, as opposed to say, well, yes, we want India to buy... $2 $2 billion of equipment, as, as, as I think was a discussion very recently about them buying military equipment, we're not going to buy from you, right? We're going to only do things domestically. This is part of the discussion that's going on right now with the EU and the United States, right? There's a four-month moratorium on tariffs that were going to be imposed, and that's being negotiated now. How do you deal with that, and how open are our borders going to be? So that's those are the three bins, right? Who are we not going to be reliant on? And then once we figure that out, 
to what degree are we going to integrate with our allies or do more of a go it alone approach, right? So that, that's the first thing I would suggest. And when we do that, I think there's some things to keep in mind. We know that the United States has a trade deficit with much of the world, right? Right. But yep. There are some areas like defense and aerospace where we have a fairly robust surplus, right? So for example, in fiscal year 2019, very recently, um, defense hardware exports, so we're not even including the services, which we do a lot of, um, exceeded $20.5 billion, right? Sales of military exports contributed more than $19 billion to dom domestic manufacturing. And according to the Bureau of Industry and Security, generated almost 90,000 jobs annually from for the past few years. Wow. That's a lot, mm -hmm. right? That's a lot. So the, and it's more than we have bought from other countries because according to some of the data that I've seen, um, what we've bought excluding um, is $11 billion. So that's a big, a big plus, a big plug to our, our budget. To what extent, if we go too far in the direction of domestic sourcing, will other countries respond in kind and say, you want us to buy $2 billion from the United States, but you won't spend $500 million for our parts? Will that happen? And that's an open question, right? Because if we're right. generating 90,000 jobs a year from foreign military sales or exports, right, that's 90,000 US jobs, right? So to the extent that we want to sell and, right, we do want to sell and create US jobs and US parts, we also want to keep those jobs that are reliant on our exports, right? And we have already seen of late some rumblings in Europe and one proposal, at least in Europe, that's not targeting the US per se, but that is saying countries that don't open their markets to us, we will not buy from or we'll respond to for tech, right? And, and so that is a balancing act that we have to figure out. And it's a really hard balancing act, right, of to what extent, how far do we go with domestic sourcing and how far do we uh, go with protecting those exports that are really providing a surplus as well as the other benefits that they provide like interoperability or um, a basis for developing closer ties on other issues. Right, right. And, does, yeah, and Moshe does, you know, like sales to foreign governments, military hardware, it also helps through the, I guess, the economies of scale or the demand, you know, reduce the overall cost of a, you know, of F-35 perhaps, right? Over the long run, you know, in yes. terms of, yes. And I mean, that's a big benefit as well. Right. It reduces, so it reduces overall cost to the extent that it promotes foreign sales. Um, some of the, so it reduces costs on two levels, actually on three levels, sorry. One is, the more we sell to other countries, the lower the per unit cost for the United States for our military is, like the F-35. The second aspect is there may be some parts that are cheaper to produce and may be more effective, right, or stronger um, as components, which means we're buying them cheaper and maybe they have to be replaced less often, right? That, that's a second. And the third is... Um, it promotes competition, right? So 
for the United States to be competitive globally, we need markets that can compete globally, particularly since the share of defense spending in this country um, is, is a small part of our global economy. And so companies that only sell 10, 20% to the defense department, they need to be competitive globally, right? And if we're developing, right. if we're developing industries that we're saying we're only gonna buy from the US, even if they're more expensive and less efficient, that's not making our economy more competitive in the long run, always. Sometimes it's important to do, don't get me wrong. I don't wanna say that these aren't good policies sometimes. The question is, where do you draw the line? And where, where do you think um, you know, the Congress and the administration will be headed on, on, this, on this industrial base, like the, the three buckets? So I, I think it's, it's pretty clear in the first bucket, you know, protecting from China, Russia, India, uh, sorry, not India, um, China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, that I think that will continue and for good reason. Um, the question is, how do we do that in a way that doesn't hurt us too, right? So for example, if we pass legislation tomorrow that said you can't buy any um, uh, rare earth minerals from China, well, what do we do? We don't have the other supply there yet, right? Right, right. And so I think you raise an excellent question which is when trying to tackle some of these issues, do we first have to build the infrastructure here that we have alternative sources before we go too far in the direction of you can't buy from, or you will be penalized if you buy from, or you have to certify if you're buying from China, because that could be important, but if there's no alternative, what are we gaining, right? How do we do this in a way that maximizes our security and to the extent possible, minimizes cost and pain to us, not in a way that compromises security at all, but, but to avoid ways of unnecessary and undue financial hardship and, and other risks. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, you know, when you describe that, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, Section 889 and Huawei and just, you know, that, that very challenge of, you know, is there, are there other uh, market uh, competitors to be able to, or sources of supply for that equipment. And there are, but are, you know, are, at the end of the day, are there enough yet? You know, what are we going to do in that regard? You know, uh, there's, you know, like Erickson, Erickson, right. And I think and Nokia, there's, aren't those a couple of the companies that make that sort of stuff and um, you know, whether or not there's enough, you know, source there to be able to compensate for uh changing you know, or, or creating those you know prohibitions you know for for companies and just for the economy as a whole oh so. absolutely and so if you look at like um schumer's and uh, no frontiers act mm -hmm. right that seems to be to me to be taking a positive a positivist approach of investing in the national science foundation right investing in commerce to create regional hubs, um, you know, and taking, um, I think it's $100 billion uh, currently for the National Science Foundation, $10 billion to commerce to create the regional technology hubs, and about $2.5 billion for manufacturing of key technologies. That is an approach to stimulate, right, and try mm -hmm. to create that infrastructure upon which to build, I think what you were talking about, right, as opposed mm -hmm. to some of the other proposals that seek to try to use a negativist approach. Like there is one bill that says companies have to, have to notify the Department of Defense for every contract they have with China, right? Mm -hmm. Now I'm not saying that that's not good visibility, 
I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad idea, but that's not going to solve the fundamental problem. Right. 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 So, you know, we want visibility, we want to protect from security, but we also want to address the fundamental issues. So we get to a point where we don't need those things because we know, we know where else we can get from. Right. So, yeah. So, and you know what, we're already up on the break and when we come back, I think we'll, we'll continue this discussion and, uh, you know, and talk a little bit about the near peer competition that's going on. Um, you know, and, and look at some of these other issues and then maybe touch a little bit on cybersecurity perhaps too as part of that segment. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. Moshe is the president of Etherton and Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. Moshe is the president of Etherton and Associates, and we're talking you know, procurement policy, national security policy, a little bit of everything. And Moshe, you know, we, we talk a lot about the industrial base and the sort of different buckets of what uh, policymakers are th- thinking about with regard to industrial uh, base and, and maintaining uh, supply chain security. And I guess this, and this all goes in a certain sense, right, at the end of the day to the competition between near-peer adversaries and the you know, experiences and lessons learned coming out of the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about uh, those two um, sure. sort of stimuli, for lack of a better term, to, to, to the focus on industrial base and cybersecurity? Absolutely. And it probably um, begins and starts to some degree with China, with the pandemic in the middle there, almost. Right. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so China, in what many have described as these hyper-partisan times in Washington and the United States, is one of the very few issues that has such broad bipartisan support, not only you know, Republican and Democrat, but within the various caucuses in the Republican and in the Democratic Party. And it's not just Congress, it's the Biden administration as well, which interestingly is generally following um, and in some cases building upon the Trump administration's China policies, right? Keeping a lot of the the tariffs and and, and trade and, and rhetoric in place. Although I would suggest perhaps, and we mentioned this before, perhaps the biggest point of departure between the two administrations is President Biden's effort to enlist allies and forge alliances to deal with China, like the Quad, for example, India, Japan, Australia, and the United States, that we mentioned before. And a lot of other countries are taking steps in this direction. For example, the uh, EU, even though they recently signed an investment deal with China, uh, that seems to be not gaining the momentum that people may have thought. And the EU executive branch and Germany have both drafted rules targeting Chinese companies. However, China has significant economic power and it will be difficult to manage that. So for example, two thirds of countries in the world trade more with China than they do with the United States. And when I read that, I was actually surprised by that, Um, particularly who some of those countries are. So for example, Australia, India, Japan, and Germany, key countries in every such effort um, to deal with China, 
trade more with China than they do with the United States. And in some cases, in a fair number of countries, the trade with China is substantially more than the United States. So that's something that we need to keep in mind. And some of this is tied to the Belt and Road Initiative. Some of this is tied to you know, the rare minerals. Um, but the United States actually has a lot less exposure and reliance on China than many other countries in the world. So that as we, as the United States embarks on this effort to enlist support from like-minded democracies in other countries, that is an obstacle or at least an issue that has to be dealt with. And their economy is growing rapidly as we know. Um, perhaps this is also time to talk about COVID also exposing supply chains and the challenges in getting PPE and uh, a number of the other uh, items that we needed. Vaccine production was, was a problem, right? You know, early on, we couldn't produce enough vaccines for what the demand is. Um, and part of that had to do with having not only manufacturing capabilities, but having the raw materials to make the vaccines, having the vials to put them in, the right. disposable vials, right? That was a shortage, which, was, which is interesting. And I think that has really opened up a lot of eyes. So while many people still believe that globalization is a positive thing, the question, like I would say most things in life, is where do you find that middle ground? Right? right. So globalization definitely helps um, competitiveness. It helps with exports, but it also can, in certain circumstances, create vulnerabilities. Right. So if there are only um, if we're reliant on one country abroad for something and for whatever reason, either a pandemic there or, or war or blockade, we can't get it in. That cripples us, although it should be noted that the reverse is true as well. If there is only one company in the United States that may some make something that we need, and there's a hurricane that brings that production offline for three months, might be useful to have a second source in Britain or France or Canada or Israel right. or, or a third source, right? So it does work both ways, right? Right. Um, and so it's all about finding that middle ground. But added to that is not just the concern of where China is today, but where will China be in five, 10, 15 years and where does that put us? And I think that is much of the drive between trying to invest and rebuild our capacity for semiconductors, right? And PCB. So with semiconductors, we used to lead the world in the manufacturing. Now Intel is one of the few, there are a couple of others, but Intel is one of the few in the United States that still does that. And they are not necessarily the leading edge in the world the way they were, and that is a challenge. So um, to ensure our future leadership, economically, politically, and militarily, we need to now make those investments. So not just think about today, but five, 10, 15, 20 years, we've put that um, infrastructure in place. Right, so uh, just to follow up, one of the interesting, um, you know, observation you made, and I'm just curious how policymakers are thinking about it, or what is that? Is that challenge where you you have historical allies, the United States, who you know share common values and and all that, and their but their biggest customer, or the biggest trading partner, is China. Um, you know, so you know when from 
from a you know from the United States sort of government perspective, a policy perspective, how do you thread that needle and you know ensuring so sort of a common approach when you know on a philosophical political perspective you share the common values, but over here and then economics there's lots of pressure to go you know a different way or or just you know have a different perspective so to speak on things. How, do, how what are people thinking about that you know and trying to figure out how to how to navigate that so i i think that is an example where it's it, you can't really say what are policymakers thinking what is congress thinking what is the sure. administration thinking because number 1 that is a hard question and and people don't really know right, right. Okay. we're grappling this with yeah. this now and it will take a long time to figure it out and on the path to figuring out, assuming it could be figured out, there are a lot of different views and a lot mm-hmm. of, uh, we're in that, you know, s- brainstorming period, which is how do we do that? Right? Right. right. And I think you see that because if you look like last year's NDA, cybersecurity is another perfect example. Maybe there's a good segue. If you look at cybersecurity, there were, I think, dozens of amendments to the House and Senate versions of the NDA on cybersecurity. Some of them were duplicative. Some of them overlapped. Some of them were complete opposites of each other because people are just brainstorming, trying to figure out how do we do this? And we're in that churn mode of trying to figure things out. And that'll take some time to settle to settle out. And we'll maybe go down one path and say, maybe that, that's not the way to go. And then, you know, take a step back and try another path. And I, I think that's that's natural, but I think that's where we are in a lot of these things is where do you draw the line and how do you draw that thread? And when we talk about reshoring, what does that mean? Does that mean reshoring from China to include our allies? Does it mean reshoring with more of a focus on those countries where there cannot possibly be a disruption um, you know, like even from Europe, there can be disruption over the seas, but Mexico and Canada are closer. Do right. you mean everything? We can't afford to bring everything back here, even if we wanted to, let alone if it's a good idea, or just strategic issues, or two sources or three sources from four countries. I mean, I, I think the answer is, I don't know, because nobody knows. Well, I don't know for other reasons, but nobody knows really how to solve this exactly. Right. So, and that's what people are going to be, are you're sort of teeing it up for the future, our future shows, Moshe, where we can yes. talk about these things. Like what we're seeing is people wrestling those with those issues now, and you'll start to see policy develop around them, whether it's through the NDA and, or through the administration moving forward. And just, just the, the picture will start to get painted. Uh, well, I, I, that's an, yeah, that's a great point. And I think you could see that to some degree in many of the executive orders that have already been issued. Right. So, so yeah, well, what, and when we come back, cause we're up on the break, why don't we talk a little bit about those executive orders, maybe a little bit about cybersecurity and uh, you know, wrap it up with just some thoughts on the, on the, you know, the new administration's sort of focus. So, okay. Sound good. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, my guest today on off this shelf is Moshe Schwartz. He is a president of Etherton and Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and we'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. Moshe is a president of Etherton and Associates, and we're talking, you know, some yeah, yeah, industrial base, cybersecurity, near peer adversary, uh, NDAA, and um, and I wanted to start the segment sort of talking about cybersecurity and where things at. You know, I know you know CMC, CMMC is still you know, on pace, uh, I guess, to be fully, you know, operational over time. Um, you know, there's, we had the solar winds hack, there's uh, lots of stuff going on there. Moshe, what's your take? Sure. So starting with CMMC as a starting point, right, it is on pace. The question is, what pace really is it on? And it seems <laughs> to be on a slower pace at the moment. We have seen another delay in getting those pathfinders out. Right? Right. So it probably won't happen this month and it'll happen later. Um, not surprising and not necessarily a black mark. Right. And the reason I would say that is when this first started, when the CMMC first started, um, much to their credit, the leadership at DOD, um, particularly Katie Arrington is an example, said, look, we're moving forward. We don't have all the answers yet. This is going to change. We need your feedback. There will be course corrections, but if we wait till we have it all figured out, it will never happen, right? right? And so from that perspective, I think there is something reassuring to hear them say, look, which is they're doing now, we're going to pause. We're going to take another look at this internally. We're getting feedback. We're having some more thoughts. And then we will go on because the plan for a while has been and, and still is as, as last I heard is to fully implement this in fiscal year 2026, right? Or starting in October, 2025. Now, um, as my wife tells me, as the kids grow up before, you know what that's going to be here, right? Before right. I know it, my little right. ones are going to get married. In fact, that could happen for one of them sooner than I realized. Right. Um, but but that is a runway and they gave themselves a runway. So even if they didn't meet that, at least they're trying to be judicious about that. And that's reassuring, but it is being delayed. There is an internal review and how it survives and to what extent it survives is a good question, but something is going to happen. Okay. In addition to CMMC, we've also seen a lot of other activity. For example, um, the appointment of a national cyber czar, right? Um, and and uh, the, a cybersecurity solarium and some of their recommendations. And there was a lot in the NDA last year. And now there's a fair amount to talk about to what extent do we need mandatory breach report reporting? And that may very well appear in the NDAA or some other bill about mandatory breach reporting. Now, will that be just defense contractors? Will that be broader than that? That is a great question and a great debate. Um, but there's a lot of concern about that. With all the talk about cybersecurity being important, the top line budget proposal that uh, the president put out only plussed up CISA, which is the uh, you know cybersecurity and infrastructure agency within the Department of Homeland Security, by I think $110 million, right? So that agency has not been plussed up to any significant number in about two years. So the question is, at some point, you know, rhetoric is important, appointing a cyber czar is important, getting qualified people there is important, but at some point, 
budget is policy. Right. And will that increase? Now, uh, Representative Katko, I think just the other day, uh, called for more funding. A number of members on both sides of the aisle have been very vocal about the need to plus that up. But that was one of the few areas that wasn't substantially plussed up. Now, in the, in the stimulus bill that passed recently, uh, CISA was given, I think, about $650 million over a few years. But even that is not big numbers when you're talking about their role and in and the, the aftermath of solar winds. Right. And didn't they, aren't they saying now too, was um, that the IT modernization fund that might, a fair amount of that might be focused on cybersecurity? Can be, yes. Right. So the $1 billion TMF, mm-hmm. right, as you mentioned, um, which was in the last bill, just a few days ago, OMB and GSA put out those new guidelines for applications from agencies, with, uh, which had looser payback requirements from those agencies, particularly in the area of cybersecurity is one of the three or four topics that they called out for action. So that could definitely help. Um, but that's not built into the long-term budget in an area right. which is so critical. And just to highlight the critical aspect of it, to go back to China, right? So we know that China stole some F-35 plans. We know China stole some Virginia-class submarine plans. As we seek to maintain our technological advantage over China, if we spend $20 billion on R&D to develop the next generation everythings, and they steal it for investments of $500 million we cannot sustain that advantage, particularly against a potential adversary whose economy is now starting to match ours. So we cannot afford to spend $20 billion in R&D for a program where they then get that program six months later or a year later or even three years later by just stealing it from us. That's how important cybersecurity is. So it would seem on paper to make more sense to make sure that we can defend the R&D that we have so it's not stolen before we start spending that money on it. I don't right, well, mean before, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah, well, it's an, I mean, I, I would characterize it's an investment in the future, right? Yeah. That's exactly what it is. So do you want to talk, um, there's a few procurement related issues out there. Well, first of all, uh, you know, streamlining acquisition, that's always, you know, uh, a focus. I mean, I, I can't remember when, you know, and I've been doing this for 30 years <laughs> when streamlining acquisition wasn't a, you know, a yeah. talking point and, and an issue. And we've seen a lot, you know, evolution you know, with uh, OTA, other transactions authority and the growth and use of those for lots of stuff at the department. What other, you know, can you t- touch on that and maybe what other things you're seeing going on out there? Yeah. So I think from what I've seen from this administration and from members of Congress and, and staff, is still a focus and belief on the need to go fast. You know, um, I would emphasize, and sometimes this gets lost in the rhetoric, it's not going fast for going fast's sake, right? It's going as fast as we need to, to get things out there, right? Right. Um, right. So it's as fast as we need to, not as fast as it can possibly happen, because we want to be cautious um, and to try to streamline. And um, there's more... Uh, there's still talk about we need to leverage a lot of these authorities like OTAs and commerciality. What is really interesting, I'd like to make one point and then perhaps a plea or a thought, is uh, many of the people that are going into the administration are deeply experienced acquisition people. 
So for example, the Secretary of the Air Force, who was or nominated for Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, is the former undersecretary for ATL, Acquisition Technology and Logistics. And he was the longest serving ATL um, ever when he was there. Right. So he has a deep experience. The uh, person nominated for Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering um, is Heidi Shu, who was the uh, chief um, acquisition officer for the Army. You have Mike Brown, who's nominated to be the Undersecretary for Acquisition Sustainment. And what's really interesting about him is, number one, he knows software, right? He was the CEO of Symantec. Mm-hmm. And he was at Defense Innovation Unit for the last few years when they virtually only do OTAs. So they get that. They get the positives, the negatives, and they all have the experience. So, for example, while Heidi Shu and RE Research and Engineering isn't an acquisition shop, it all relates to acquisition. While Frank Kendall might not be doing acquisition all the time, and that's not his job, he'll be the secretary. It's great that he has that background so we can have these robust discussions across the departments. Doug Bush, who's the principal deputy for um, uh, acquisition in the Army, who was just most recently um, deputy uh, staff director for the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, those are deeply experienced people, and that is great to see. Um, the plea I would have, or the thought is, so how do we continue this going forward? And this is the thought I had, and I would wonder what you think, Roger. Um, So in the last NDAA, Title 18 had a reorganization of acquisition statutes. And the idea was to take all the acquisition statutes that were spread throughout Title 10 and put them in a rational, organized, sequential order that mirrored the way the FAR is structured and mirrored the way an acquisition is actually done, right? First, you right. do market research, right? right, right, right. You know, well, first you do the R&D, then you do the market research and go in that order so it's easy to find what the law is. My thought would be this is a great opportunity to do a long-term in-depth scrub of all of acquisition that would go like this. Over the next year, let's finish the reorganization. Because as I always tell my kids, before you throw things away in your room, figure out what you got in your room. Don't right. throw away something <laughs> that you're going to need and yep. see if you have five of it, because then maybe you can throw away four of them, right? Or sell them on eBay. Either way works, right? right? So let's reorganize all these statutes so we can really get a handle on what laws do we have, right? And then once we do that over the next year, now let's look at all the notes. So what most people don't know, including many staffers I have talked to, is that you can pull the legislative text, but under that are these notes, or in other, in other words, laws that were passed. They are operative law that the Law Revision Council in Congress said, you know what? These laws we're not putting in the legislative text. We're going to put it under notes every year. And sometimes they are really long. So for example, there's one statute, 10 USC 2373. Um, no, um, I think I could be wrong. On 2302, sorry, 2302 which has about three pages of legislative text and about 70 pages of notes. And most people don't even know that that's law. Let's go through all the notes. Many of those have expired because there are things that say do a report, do a pilot program, and they're expired. Let's get rid of the ones that are expired. Let's take the ones that are permanent now or being used a lot, like mid-tier acquisition authority is a note. It's actually not in the legislative text, right? Let's move into the legislative text Let's see where there are conflicts because some of them conflict and let's just clean that out. 
right? That's step two. And then step three, once we've done that, is let's start from page one and go all the way through systematically and have debates and have a real robust debate on policy and say, does this make sense anymore? Because one thing the 809 panel did is in a few instances, they said, we have this acquisition law now like um, two-sided paper, right? That was a law and regulation or having to use dollar coins. The machines have to take dollar coins and say, do we really need that in our acquisition process? Right? Right, right. And I think that would be a systematic way to start getting at these issues. Instead of just a commission that throws off a few things, let's, let's clean the barnacles of acquisition off the huge boat of the federal acquisition regulation. And I know that's a terrible metaphor. I apologize. No, that's okay. I mean, and I'm, I'm, gl- I'm so glad you mentioned the notes <laughs> because that's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's always used to boggle my mind. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think there, there's a lot of mer- merit to what, to what you're saying. And, and I think the, the f- act of going through and reorganizing it and then cleaning out that in and of itself re- would like settle some of the debate, you know, as for that third step. I think you'd get a long way towards having, you know, a consensus already as to what things should or shouldn't be there just by doing those first two steps. And then the third step would be the bonus. And it's definitely, definitely a world worthwhile, uh, you know, project to explore. I think you need a lot of lawyers to be working and, you know, and, and operational folks too, because you need to understand the impact of what the law actually is. And, um, and, you know, Moshe, we're at the end of the show, so we'll have to come back and, uh, do this again is there's, there's so many different things to talk about and such a fascinating, you know, area acquisition does touch and these policy things touch everything we do and they have great implications and ramifications for the future. I want to thank my guest today, Moshe Schwartz. Moshe is the president of Etherton and Associates. I'm Roger Waldron and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.